This morning we're going to turn back to the passage we read earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is part of the epilogue to 2 Samuel. The main body of the book told the story of David's rise, fall, and restoration. That main section ended at chapter 20, with David back on the throne in Jerusalem. And then chapters 21 to 24 give us, really, a summation of David's reign. They bring together a selection of different things, and they leave us with an overall picture of his reign. The week before Easter, we saw David's kingdom was not able to deal properly with God's wrath. That was a significant issue during David's reign, as it is today. But David's efforts to deal with God's wrath were unsatisfactory. The solution to God's wrath needed a greater king than David. And over Easter, we focused on how Jesus solved the problem of God's wrath. He took it on himself to save us from it. And now this morning we come to another part of this epilogue. And this time we have not a particular incident from David's reign, but a song. The King's Song. This song shows us how we are to think of David's reign. As we look over his 40 years as king. It turns out we are not to focus on David, the great and powerful king. We are to focus on David's great and powerful God. This song is exalting God for what he has done. David himself tells us in this song, if you read my story as if it's all about me, then you have missed what's most important in my story. The important thing David says about my life and my reign is the God at work in my life and reign. And as we go through this, we'll see the same is true for your life and mine. The most important thing is not the successes or the failures of our lives. What's most important is the God at work in our lives. There are three big themes in this song. It's a song about deliverance. It's a song about purity. And it's a song about purpose. That's how David experienced God's work in his life. That's what he praises God for in this song. And we'll see God does the same work in our lives. And he's equally worthy of praise for it. So first of all, this is a song about deliverance. Verse 1 says, David sang to the Lord the words of this song. When the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You'll notice we're not given a specific time when David wrote this. He may have composed it later in his reign as he was looking back over many deliverances God brought from many different enemies. And what comes next has been described as an explosion of praise put across in a barrage of images. 
Listen to the words David uses in verse 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people you save me. And notice how this is all personal. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and so on. That phrase, the horn of my salvation, it pictures an animal, maybe a bull, standing in triumph over its enemies. Its horn is raised, showing its power. David says, that's how God has been to me. He's not only a fortress I run to and hide in, God has gone on the offensive to deliver me. Then in verse 4, David describes a particular experience of God's deliverance. A specific time when God went to war for him. He says, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. David pictures the situation as if he's drowning in the sea. He's overcome by waves, sinking down, tangled in weeds. Now we don't know of any situation in his life where David was actually drowning in the sea. But that's not the point. The point is his experience, whatever it was, felt just as horrible and as hopeless as drowning in the sea. Unable to free himself. Unable to rise above the cords coiled around him. All the stuff that was dragging him down to the bottom. Maybe as you hear David's words, you can relate to this. You may have been through something that felt like drowning. The pressure felt unbearable, like you were suffocating. God's people have experiences like that. Maybe you are right in the middle of one of those experiences. Some storm that's blown up in your life. That's too much for you. You're drowning. If that's the case, the first thing that's helpful here is just to see this kind of stuff happens to God's people. This kind of desperate trouble is not unique to you. The specific details probably are unique, but the sense of being overwhelmed by it all is not unique. You are not strange because a storm has hit you. Now we all look peaceful as we sit here together now. But many of us know privately about torrents of destruction. And so it may be at least a minor encouragement to know you're not alone. But there is a more significant encouragement here. 
David has used powerful language to describe his distress. But now he uses even more powerful language to describe his God and the actions of his God. Look what he says in verse 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. David called, God heard, and verse 8 says, God was angry at what he heard. God is not an unmoved granddad in the sky. God cares about injustice and cruelty and suffering. He's angry about it. And that's good. He cares about the storms we go through because of enemies. Whatever form those enemies take. Sickness and death are enemies, the Bible says. They are enemies just as much as human cruelty is an enemy. Here, God is angry because his king is threatened with destruction. Maybe it was the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Edomites or the Amalekites. There was a long list of enemies. But God heard David's cry in the midst of it. He cared about what he heard and he acted. Verse 10 says, he parted the heavens and came down. That's amazing. He did that in response to David's cry. The fact is so amazing, David describes all this in terms of lightning bolts and thunder and earthquakes. But if we stop and think about it, we don't know of a time in David's life when things happened this way. We saw earlier, we have no evidence David was ever drowning in the sea. But that picture described the horror of his experience very well. And here, something similar is going on. God did not appear through a hole in the clouds firing lightning bolts From a bow. But that picture shows how amazing it is that God would respond and intervene in David's situation. 
if David is remembering some battle situation, it may have been resolved on the day with what seemed like a straightforward victory on the battlefield. But David understands behind that straightforward victory was the powerful activity of God. It was God's powerful activity that enabled David's tiny army to defeat Absalom's massive army. Or earlier in David's life, it was God's powerful activity that enabled David the boy to defeat Goliath the giant warrior. Those deliverances were both described for us in pretty matter-of-fact ways, as if they were no big deal. They just happened. But the reality behind the scenes was a very big deal. The reality involved Almighty God hearing the cry of his servant, then parting the heavens and coming down to deliver his servant. And that is true for any deliverance you or I experience in our lives. When God brings us through some storm, an illness maybe, when he brings us out the other side, or when he brings us through some relationship difficulty, maybe a time of immense pressure, When we end up safely on the other side of that storm, it might seem at that point like it's no big deal. What was I even worried about? Of course it was going to be fine. But David wants us to see there is no of course about it. When we cry to God in distress and he delivers us, it is amazing. It means that behind the scenes, our God went to war for us. He brought his power and his fury to bear on our behalf. Those deep waters we were in, they didn't just fade away. God himself drew us out of them. Otherwise, we would have sunk without trace. And that's true supremely when it comes to the deep waters of our sin. If God had not parted the heavens and come down in the form of a baby, if he hadn't gone to such amazing lengths, you and I would have been dragged to eternal death by our sin. But God came in human flesh to rescue us from our most powerful enemy, We sit here this morning like it's the most natural thing in the world for us to be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. But it is amazing. It is an astonishing deliverance of God. And he's done it in each one of our lives if we're following Jesus. For all of eternity, we will be praising God for that deliverance. The more we see what went on behind the scenes, the more we see the power and fury it took to save us, 
and the more we will live lives now that honor God for his deliverance. The more we will live to hear his voice and obey it. This song is about deliverance. It's also about purity. And this is the point where the song becomes puzzling to us, I think. It's not puzzling because we can't understand what David's saying. It's puzzling because we can understand what he's saying and it seems totally outrageous. Look again at David's words. Verse 20. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. In Northern Ireland, we would say, David has some neck on him to come out with this. How does he have the cheek to say this? After Bathsheba, you remember her? And Uriah. Well, one way of trying to deal with this is to say, David doesn't really mean what he's saying. It might sound like he's claiming perfect purity here, but really David just means he was a generally good man. Overall, mostly, he was faithful to the Lord. I have to say that seems a pretty inadequate way to deal with this. It's inadequate for a couple of reasons. First of all, it suggests God is satisfied with a kind of purity that's hardly recognizable as purity. If adultery and murder don't make me impure, it's hard to know what purity means anymore. Do we really want to say, God is content so long as you don't do lots of adultery and murder? And claiming David's only talking about some kind of general purity, that's inadequate for another reason. It doesn't do justice to what he actually says in these verses. The reason these verses pull us up, and I imagine they did pull you up, is because David speaks so confidently and so boldly about his purity. He talks about his righteousness, his clean hands. He says, I'm not guilty of turning away from my God. I have been blameless before him. We're not doing justice to the text when we water this down to mean, I've just about scraped a pass mark with you, God. So let's not try and explain these verses away. Let's deal with them in all of their boldness and their confidence. And let's realize also the writer of 2 Samuel chose to put this song here 
after all the gory details of David's sin. This song is included here precisely because it would seem outrageous to us. It was not put here hoping we would have forgotten about chapters 11 to 20 already. One commentator says, by putting this song here, the writer is forcing us to stop and ask the question, how is it possible for an adulterer and murderer to speak as David speaks here? So let's try to answer that question. How can David speak so confidently about his purity? We find the answer to that back in chapter 12. In the aftermath of all that sin, the prophet Nathan confronted David. David acknowledged his guilt. He sought God's forgiveness. And Nathan responded with these words. The Lord has taken away your sin. That one simple truth explains David's boldness here. In spite of all he's done, David stands pure in God's presence because of God's gracious forgiveness. One writer puts it like this. We may still remember David's sin and pin it on him. Remarkably, the Lord does not. David can describe his life without reference to his failures, not because he is self-righteous, but because he is deeply aware that God had done what Nathan told him God had done. David sees his life as God sees his life. If you and I read David's words here about his purity, and if we are shocked by David's words, it's only because we underestimate God's cleansing power. David's life was unrighteous, but he stands before God righteous. David had blood on his hands, but he stands before God with clean hands. David turned from God, but he stands not guilty of turning from God. Psalm 51 records David's prayer of repentance after his sin. David knew he was guilty. And he also knew God had the power to make him whiter than snow. And here, we're listening to the David who has experienced that cleansing power of God. God's forgiveness is outrageous. But it's true. When we come to him in repentance, he really does take away our sin. God not only delivers us from the power of sin, he goes even further. He purifies us from the guilt of sin. 
The New Testament tells us our purification comes by the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice removes our sin. God looks at us and says, not guilty because of Jesus. And so we can approach God with confidence. Not because we've lived a perfect life or even a passable life. None of us have managed that. We approach God with confidence because of what he has done to make us whiter than snow. Maybe some of us have come to God for forgiveness, but we live like it's just a partial forgiveness. As if God has begrudgingly led us into his family. As if he's always muttering about what a nuisance we are. And he wonders some days why he even accepted us at all. That is not what the Bible tells us about God's forgiveness. Let's honor God by recognizing his forgiveness is full. His cleansing is perfect. We do not honor God when we act like he couldn't quite deal with our guilty stains. David experienced God's purifying power. And he discovered how God treats his purified people. Verse 26. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. The point is, God is reliable. Those who resist him will be brought low. They will discover they can't outwit him. God is reliably opposed to rebels. But those who cry out to God in humble repentance, they discover his faithfulness. God is reliably faithful to his people. This song is about deliverance. It's about purity. The outrageous fact that sinners can stand before God pure. And finally, it's about purpose. In this last section of the psalm, David realizes God delivered him and purified him for a reason. God had a purpose for David's life. David was to lead God's people to victory. He was to establish God's kingdom and defeat God's enemies. And so David says in verse 33, God arms me with strength. Verse 35, he trains my hands for battle. Verse 36, your help has made me great. David is praising God because whatever David has done for God has been enabled by God. 
what he says in verse 38. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my Savior. In David's generation, David was God's Messiah. He was God's instrument to bring judgment on God's enemies and to preserve God's people. That was God's purpose for David. And God gave him everything he needed to fulfill that purpose. Of course, David had something unique to do in his time and his place. But the principle applies to all of us. God delivered and purified you for a purpose. And he equips you to fulfill that purpose. And maybe as I say that, you think, well, that kind of language is too grand to describe my life. Maybe you think, I'm only a fill-in-the-blank. I'm only a 15-year-old. I'm only a mother. I'm only a grandmother. Only a retired person. Only a single person. I don't see any divine purpose for my life. But listen to these words from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see how the logic goes there? We were saved for a purpose. Our good works don't save us, but we were saved to do good works. It's the same progression we've seen here in David's song. The purpose God has for us is going to vary. It will be specific to our own situation. But we have all been saved to serve God's kingdom in our time and our place. David served the kingdom by leading as king. You might serve the kingdom by caring for elderly parents, by bringing up children, By staying faithful, maybe as the only Christian in your workplace. Being the most trustworthy, reliable person there. You might serve the kingdom through some ministry in the church. 
You might serve the kingdom by praying carefully and faithfully for the needs of the fellowship. Whatever it is, whatever God has set in front of you to do, he will arm you with strength for it. Just like he did with David. And sometimes, arming us with strength means enabling us to keep going with what seems like monotonous, dead-end responsibilities. Sometimes that's what it means for God to give us strength, just to keep doing those things for his glory when nobody notices. Being a faithful husband and father, for example, that can seem like an insignificant purpose. But God will use that faithfulness for his kingdom. All the way through this song, we've seen the hero is God himself. He's the one who does great things for us and through us. We've seen too how we can take this song and make it our own. In one sense, this is a song for all God's people. David was a flawed human just like us. We can relate to his experience. But we can't ignore the fact as well, David was also God's Messiah. This is the song of God's anointed king. So however well it applies to us, it belongs in a special way to the Messiah. We can see that in the very last verse, verse 51. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. That's a reference back to God's promise in chapter 7 of this book. God said he would place one of David's descendants on an eternal throne. That descendant of David would reign over an eternal kingdom. And so however much this song applied to David, it applies in an even greater way to the promised descendant of David, the true Messiah. Last week on Easter Sunday, we celebrated God's work to deliver his Messiah. On Good Friday, the torrents of destruction crash down on Jesus. The cords of the grave closed around him. And on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The New Testament tells us God the Father heard his son's cry of distress. God the Father responded. He reached down from on high. He drew his son out of the deep waters of death. He raised him to life because he delighted in him. Jesus didn't have to be made pure. He was eternally pure. And God rewarded him for his faithfulness. He raised his son to the highest place. 
And today, the risen Jesus is at work. He is purposeful, building his kingdom. And one day he will return to crush every remaining enemy of God. So yes, David wrote this song in 2 Samuel 22. But this is Jesus' song. And because of Jesus, you and I can sing it too. We can know what it is to be delivered from destruction. Because he was delivered. We can know what it is to be purified from our sin because of his purity. And we can live to serve God's kingdom now and for all of eternity. In a moment, we'll have time to reflect and bring our thanks to him individually as we gather around the Lord's table. But first, let's respond by praising him together as we sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise.